bow your heads with me one more time as we go to the Lord to ask his blessing on the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, we confess our ignorance of you and all things that have to do with you. We have no wisdom in ourselves. We are foolish. You are wise. And we need your spirit to illuminate the word that he breathed out in the pages of Scripture. We need you to shine into our hearts with the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So would you do that for us this morning as we listen to your word? Pour out your spirit on this congregation. Meet with us now. Teach us. Encourage us. Convict and strengthen us for the glory of Jesus Christ and for the clarity of our witness together as a congregation to the world. For Jesus' sake, amen. Origin stories make good movies. We'd like to know how our heroes got their start. The Hobbit, Batman Begins, X-Men First Class, Iron Man. Backstories lend insight What we like even better is to see where we ourselves came from. Ancestry.com, 23andMe. How did we come to be? We like answering that question. History informs identity, even bestows it. And that is at least partly the idea behind the biblical book of Acts as we begin our series through it this morning with an overview of the whole book. Now immediately when I say that sentence, I can hear some of you, you're going to preach the whole book this morning? You've got to be kidding me. Yeah, we're going to do it. This is a good idea, contrary to popular opinion, (laughs) because if you don't get a, a sense of the whole thing, you're going to get lost. Uh, in the forest for the trees. So we're going to take a 30,000, 40,000, 50,000 foot overview of it and see what's going on in the whole thing this morning. We normally don't do this. Usually we're in a smaller passage, but this morning we're going to start our series with an overview of the whole book. Because among other things, Acts is an origin story. It answers the question, how did we come to be as a Christian church? Where did we come from? What are we doing here? What's our backstory? And the point of the whole book, as you'll see in the handout that I've given you in your bulletin, is that God's word about Jesus' resurrection establishes God's kingdom and creates God's people. God's word about Jesus' resurrection establishes God's kingdom and creates God's people. I think that's Luke's main point in giving us the whole book of Acts. That's what he wants to assure us of. That's true. This is where you came from. This is where your message originated. Now, this is, again, a different kind of sermon because the method is going to be different. It's not topical. It's not strictly expositional in the sense that we're used to hearing or in the sense that we're used to thinking about it. The method is not simply exegetical or walking you through consecutively a text, line by line by line, word for word for word, paragraph by paragraph. It is expositional, though, in the simple sense of exposing the point of the whole passage and using that and preaching that as the point of the whole sermon. But the method is what we would call biblical theological. 
One thing biblical theology does is to trace distinctive themes through one set of biblical writings written by one author, Luke, in his two-volume series on Jesus and the church, Luke-Acts. So I'm giving you an overview of the point just of the book of Acts as a whole book. But I'm giving you that point expositionally, with the whole point of the book in mind as the whole point of the sermon, by tracing distinctive themes that Luke uses to make that point, biblical theology. But we're also doing... Now, I've written these big words down, okay? These are in your notes. I'm also doing what's called historiography and narrative theology. What does that mean? Historiography is just the study of how you go about writing history. History, history, graphe, writing, the writing of history. How did Luke write the history that he relates to us in Acts, and what does the way that he wrote it mean for how we understand what he wrote? And narrative theology is similar. It's a way of studying biblical narratives that tries to see how the whole storyline of the narrative, like Acts, is woven together by the author and how the structure of the narrative helps to make the point of the narrative. How does he tell this story? How does he relate the history? And how does that method structure and make the point that he's trying to make in telling the history. So this morning, we're trying to see how Luke retold the historical origins of the church and how that way of ordering it has shaped and packaged and framed the point of the book itself. Now, one more note before we get going. I'm going to quote a whole lot of different scriptures from all over Luke Acts. It is, you are going to feel helpless if you try to turn to every one of those through this sermon. It's going to frustrate you. Don't do that. Usually I want you looking at your Bibles every single week. This week I've given you some of the text in your handout. All of the references, or at least most of the references, are in there for you to look up later. But this means that you're not going to be able to keep up in your listening if you're going to try to write everything down. I know that's frustrating to you, because it's frustrating to me. I'm a note taker. A lot of you are note takers. You're just going to have to listen. Just listen, and just write a few things down. So again, I've given you a handout with all the references, with the whole outline. That way, when you hear one that you want to go back to as a reference, just underline it and keep on listening, because we're going to be moving quick. So, God's word about Jesus' resurrection establishes God's kingdom and creates God's people. And so we're going to look at a few different ways that I... that that uh, Luke has structured the whole work. And he takes, first of all, Isaiah as his framework. He's using and quoting the book of Isaiah in different parts of Acts to shape the whole thing and to convince you, hey, what's going on here is a fulfillment of what Isaiah had said long ago was going to happen, that God was going to do. Now again, Luke is the one writing both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. He's writing both of these volumes to the same person, Theophilus, God-lover. He mentions Theophilus as his primary reader in Luke 1 through 3, and he mentions Theophilus as his primary reader also in Acts 1.1. So Luke and Acts are two books that represent a single unified history, one that's theologically driven Christ-centered narrative about the historical life, death, resurrection, and physical ascension of Jesus Christ 
and how it came to be that the Christian church was born to be what it is. Two volumes, one history. And my argument in this first main point is simply that Luke uses Isaiah to structure and unify both volumes into one cohesive story that continues God's purposes from the Old Testament and fulfills God's promises from the Old Testament. Now I'm going to quote some passages to show you how Luke uses Isaiah like a trellis to hang the whole vine of his story onto as it grows and matures. Or if you are not a gardener and you don't even know what a trellis is, Isaiah, man, this is going to help you. Isaiah is the rebar that gives structure and form to the concrete that Luke pours as he builds the history. This is the structure. It's going to give form and shape and hold it all together and make it solid. Okay? Isaiah is that for Luke in Acts. So at the outset of Luke's gospel, we're going all the way back to the first volume now, Luke 2, 30, 30 and 32, he shows us Simeon holding on to the Christ child and quoting Isaiah 49, 6. You have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles, Isaiah 49, 6, and for glory to your people Israel. So at the very outset of the book, the first volume, Luke, He's saying, look, I want you to see Jesus in light of Isaiah 49.6. A light for revelation to the Gentiles. That's what Jesus becomes over the long course of the narrative in Acts. Again, in Luke 3.6, Luke summarizes the goal. So I'm, I'm just trying to get you to see Acts is still continuing what Luke's doing. Luke starts it, Acts continues it in this Isaiah stuff. Luke 3, 6, Luke summarizes the goal of John the Baptist preaching with a quote from Isaiah 52, 10. All flesh shall see the salvation of God. So for Luke, that quote in Luke 3 is not just an introduction to the Baptist ministry. It's an introduction to what Luke intends to show you, not just in the whole uh, gospel, but also in the whole book of Luke and Acts. Acts is where all ethnic flesh is going to see the salvation of God. From Isaiah 52, Quoted in Luke 3, 6. Luke, Luke 3, 6, quoting Isaiah 52, happens in Acts. All flesh is going to see the glory of God in Acts. In the mission of the church. Luke 4, 16 to 30, quoting Isaiah 61, 1. Jesus' first public sermon in Luke 4 was from Isaiah 61. Spirit of the Lord has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, Isaiah 61, and recovery of sight of the blind, set liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He sits down to teach on that text. He says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled and you're here. Man, can you imagine being there? That would have been electric and maybe scandalous. Everybody's amazed until Jesus keeps talking about how Elijah wasn't sent to any of the widows in Israel, but only to the widow of Zarephath in Sidon, who was a Gentile outside Israel. And they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. You ain't from around here, are you, Jesus? Because we don't talk like that as Jews. And Elisha 
wasn't sent to heal lepers in Israel, Jesus said on the same occasion in Luke 4, but only to Naaman the Syrian, a Gentile outside Israel. And all of a sudden the Jews want to literally throw Jesus off a cliff because he's talking about the salvation of the Gentiles. But that's going to happen in the book of Acts. Luke is already getting you ready in Luke 4 to see Gentiles saved in Acts and he's legitimating that from Isaiah 61. And Luke 49, Isaiah 49, 6. This is where Luke's whole two-volume work is going. The healing and conversion and inclusion of the Gentiles into God's people through the sinless life, substitutionary death, physical resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, which resulted in the outpouring of the Spirit, the commissioning of the apostles, and the preaching of the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria into the utter parts of the earth. That's the story of Acts. But that story begins in Luke. Luke 24, 44 to 49. So Luke's beginning and now Luke's ending include references to Isaiah. We go from the front end of the book to the middle of the two volumes where Luke is sewing these two volumes together. Luke 24 and Acts 1 function like hinges between the volumes. The swing the gospel closed while they open up Acts. Luke is helping you here to see the connection between his gospel account of Jesus and his Acts account of God's word building God's church. And the hinge is a phrase from Isaiah 49.6, to the end of the earth. I mean, if you're a Jew and you know your Old Testament and you're hoping in the Messiah who is promised by Isaiah you're going to understand and know that. You're going to recognize that phrase, to the end of the earth, to the end of the earth. Mm, something good's happening now. It's happening. It is happening. Luke paraphrases that in an ethnic way in Luke 24, 47, as to all the nations. But he quotes it explicitly at Acts 1, 8 as to the ends of the earth. So at the end of the first volume... And at the beginning of the second volume, he's using the same kind of language to tell you, hey, this is the same story. Luke 24 was to be continued. And the glue that binds those two volumes together is the idea of the gospel of Jesus Christ going to the end of the earth. So when Luke records Jesus saying in Acts 1.8, you will become my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth, Luke means us to be reminded of Luke 24.47 and Isaiah 49.6. The story continues. It's the same story Isaiah foretold. It's the same story Luke was telling in his gospel. And now it's the same story he's going to tell in Acts. He's using Isaiah 49.6 to the end of the earth to sow his gospel back to Isaiah and Acts back to his gospel. And so Acts is now also sown together as part of the story Isaiah foretold. God is doing in and through Jesus what Isaiah said God would do. And the story of what God has done is being told now in Luke and Acts. Mission to the nations. And that mission reaches a turning point 
in Acts 13, 46, and 47. Where Paul and Barnabas are in a Jewish synagogue in Pisidian Antioch, which is central Turkey. They preach one Sabbath day there. The gospel goes over so well that the next Sabbath, almost the whole town shows up. But then the Jews get jealous. They publicly contradict Paul, turn the crowd against him, which is when Paul quotes Isaiah 49.6. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, Jews, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles. But who is you? It sounds like what Paul is saying is, my ministry as an apostle is now being used as a light to the Gentiles because the Jews are refusing to believe my preaching about the gospel and about what Isaiah was actually saying was going to go forth to the Gentiles. That you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That's Paul's mission from here on out. Paul views himself as a God-ordained light to the Gentiles from Isaiah 49.6 to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. In other words, Paul is doing nothing contrary to Jewish Old Testament Scripture. He's doing exactly what God said God would do. In fact, he's fulfilling Jewish Scripture by proclaiming Jesus as the salvation from the guilt of sin for all the world if we will only turn from our sins and trust in Christ. One more quote from Isaiah closes out the whole book of Acts. Acts 28, 25 to 28 quotes Isaiah 6. So at the very end of the book, at the very end of the two-volume series, Paul is in Rome still testifying to his Jewish countrymen about the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some were convinced, others disbelieved. Now, what is Paul's response to that disbelief? His response is Isaiah 6. The Spirit was right about your forefathers when he said through Isaiah, you will indeed hear but never understand, you will indeed see but never perceive, for this people's heart has grown dull. Paul's saying, look, God was right about your forefathers, and the implication is, and it looks like he's right about you. It sure looks like Isaiah 6 is applying to you Jews who are now refusing me just like you refused Isaiah. And so Paul's conclusion is, Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. They will listen. Salvation to the end of the earth. So we're back full circle from where Luke started, not only at the beginning of his second volume in Acts 1.8 to the ends of the earth, but all the way back at the beginning of his first volume, Luke 2.32, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Jesus is going to be a light to the Gentiles. Jesus commissions his disciples to take the message of forgiveness of sins to the ends of the earth. Paul says that. And now Paul ends the whole volume of Luke-Acts being quoted as taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles. So Luke has bookended and then sewn together his two-volume work, Luke-Acts, with references to Isaiah. Why does he do that? 
Well, he does that to show everyone, especially resistant Jews, that the history of Jesus and his creation of the church is not merely consistent with the Old Testament. It's not even just permissible from the Old Testament. It's actually the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. Even the Jewish rejection of Jesus' history and their rejection of the ingathering of the Gentiles into God's people all the way through the book of Acts, even that rejection fulfills the Jews' own scriptures. See, God told you you guys would do this, and here you are doing it. But that's your scriptures. So Luke, this is very important, Luke is not anti-Semitic. The Jews in Acts are anti-Jesus. And Luke is only pointing that out because it's only through Jesus that the Jews or anyone else can have their sins forgiven and their hearts set free. That's the first point. Isaiah as the framework. Second point. Second point of the outline. Moving on. God's word as the agent. God's written and preached word is practically personified. It's like the word of God, the preaching of the word of God, the scriptures, the gospel. It's like that's a character in the narrative doing work. It's like the word of God is a protagonist in the storyline. The word of God is a hero. As if it were growing, even waging war. Luke gives us three summary statements of God's word conquering all the opposition it encounters in Acts 6. This is the first one. Acts 6, if you'll remember, there's a division inside the church between Hebrew Jews and Hellenized or Greekified Jews. And the Greekified widows were not getting as much from the food pantry as the Hebrew widows were getting, and that was causing arguments among the grown children of those widows. Mm. You imagine that happening here today? The families, the widows of black people in the church not getting as much from the food pantry as the widows of white people in the church, or vice versa. What do you think that's going to do to the unity of the church, to the mission of the church, to the focus of the church, to the love of the church? This thing could have come to a grinding halt right in Acts 6 over this stuff. This is racial. But it didn't. Why not? Short answer, deacons. Deacons. Deacons were appointed to serve tables so that the elders could keep serving the word. But the summary is not about how the church was doing so awesome. The summary is about how the word was doing so awesome in Acts 6-7. They handle it. They appoint the seven deacons, the proto-deacons. Acts 6-7 says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem as a result of the word of God increasing, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The word of God increased. What does that even mean? Does it mean they were adding to Scripture? No, it means the influence and power and authority of the word of God was increasing over people and over time and over space. Then comes opposition from outside the church, official Roman opposition, in fact. Acts 12, Herod kills James, the brother of Jesus, this is maybe one of the most entertaining parts of Scripture. 
Herod kills James, the brother of Jesus, went over really well with the Jews. So Herod arrested Peter, put him in prison too. Of course, the angel of the Lord busts Peter out. But that's not even the coolest part. In Acts 12, 20, Herod is angry with the people in Sidon City. And apparently they're trying to get back on his good side. So when he comes to town to give a speech, they flatter him in Acts 12, 22. So you know, there's a, there's a, there's a kind of stupid trend today of people going to concerts and throwing things at the people who are performing on stage. That's not what these people were doing. They were doing the opposite. Oh, Herod, Herod, man, we love you. What a speech. And they say to him, the voice of a God and not a man. Because they're dependent on him for food. So I'm not even sure they mean what they're saying. But they're saying it. And boy, Herod loves the sound of that from the crowd, doesn't he? Voice of a God and not a man. Yeah, that sounds good. That's a little more like it. Sidon City. Yeah, yeah. I'll take more of that, please, from you. And immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down. Because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. I mean, maybe that should be a life verse for us. I don't know. That's a good one. That's encouraging. The enemies of the gospel got eaten by worms. But again, the summary in contrast is not, but Peter kept on becoming a rock star. Or the church started having so much favor with politicians that politicians started asking them political counsel. Nope. The summary contrast with Herod's grotesque demise is Acts 12.24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. God's word is the winner in that scenario. Then in Acts 19.20, the opposition comes in the form of some Jewish exorcists in Ephesus who start throwing around Jesus' name like a magical phrase. They try to cast out demons in Jesus' name, like Paul had done, but instead of the demoniacs, jump the exorcists and leave them bloody and bruised. Whoa, that did not go like they saw it in their minds, did it? Word gets out, people are amazed, they repent of their magic and believe in the gospel, but here again, it's not the apostles of the church who are said to prevail. The summary is, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And prevail mightily is military language. It was waging war and it was winning. It was conquering. That's the preached word of Jesus' resurrection and ascension to the throne of God's kingdom. We get other statements of the word of God being personified, treated like a person, doing things that a person would do, and performative, performing things simply by its own power. The Word of God in Acts is personified, treated as a character, and it is performative. It does things. It's like Luke wants you to view the Word of God itself as one of the main protagonists, maybe the main protagonist in the narrative. The Word is a hero. Acts 20, verse 32, And now I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. The Word... The word of his grace is able to build you up. The author of Hebrews is not the only one who thinks of the word of God as living and active. And because Luke thinks the word itself is powerful, it deserves the praise it gets in Acts 13, 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying, not God, not Jesus, not the apostles, not the church, 
they began glorifying the word of the Lord. That's in the Bible. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. That's also in the Bible. The word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But it's not just God's written word that is a protagonist. It's also God's incarnate and ascended word, Jesus Christ. We don't always think about that in Acts, do we? We think, oh, he's risen, he's ascended, now he's gone. And now it's all the apostles' show. Not so. Luke opens his whole second volume by saying in Acts 1.1, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Ah, isn't that suggestive? He doesn't just say, I have dealt with all that Jesus did and taught. He said, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. That phrase, all that Jesus began to do, in the very first sentence of volume 2, Acts, indicates that Luke presents the whole book of Acts as all that Jesus continued to do and teach as the risen and ascended, and yet still somehow present, Lord Christ. Now that messes with your brain, doesn't it? How in the world is that possible? If Jesus' resurrection and ascension were physical, if he's going to come back in the same way you saw him go, and he went physically, and he's up on a cloud, and he's going, and he's gone, then how is he still doing work here? Some of you unwittingly sang of the implications of his ascension. In verse 5 of the Lord is King. Come make your wants, your burdens known. Christ will present them at the throne. This world of ours and worlds unseen. How thin the boundary between. Ah yes, Jesus' risen ascended body is real. We don't know how that works. It messes with our view of reality. What does that mean for the cosmos? That somehow the physical ascended Jesus Christ is a main character in the book of Acts on the earth. But that's how it is. How thin the boundary between. His physical... Absence does not mean that he is inactive. The risen, ascended Christ is continuing to do in Acts what he began to do in Luke's gospel. All you have to do is follow the pronouns in Peter's Pentecost sermon in Acts 2. Maybe you want to turn there, or I may may have given it to you in the handout, in the text. In Acts 2.17, Peter quotes Joel 2, where God declares, I, I will pour out my spirit. But look at Acts 2.33. Who poured out the Spirit according to Peter? Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He, the risen and ascended Christ, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing at Pentecost. Jesus did that. Jesus did that. Again in Acts 2.47, the Lord added to their number those who are being saved. The Lord added to their number those who are being saved. But if we trace the pronouns back... To who the Lord is in Acts 2, we discover in Acts 2.36, God, the Father, has made Him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ. 
the Lord, who is adding to their number in chapter 2, verse 47, is the Lord Christ in 2.36. Risen and ascended. In chapter 7, it's the risen and ascended Jesus who opens the heavens and appears to Stephen. In chapter 9, it's the risen and ascended Jesus who appears to Saul and converts him on the road to Damascus by saying, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. You persecute the church, you persecute me, Jesus says. It's the Lord who appears to Paul in Corinth in Acts 18, 9, says, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. I am with you. The risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ is with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many people in this city who are my people. And all of this, then, is consistent with Isaiah serving as Luke's framework for the two-volume series. After all, where do we think Luke got his theology of the performative power of God's Word? God's Word is doing all these things, both His written Word and His incarnate Word. Where did Luke get that idea? Most likely from his quiet time in Isaiah 55. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so my word will be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it, my word, shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. You'll see in that theology of the Word of God worked out in the book of Acts. God's Word does His work. When God wants to get something done, He talks. He sends His Word. And that's what Luke is telling us in the book of Acts. What's accomplishing all this wonderful work in the book of Acts? It's not just the church. It's not just the apostles. It's the Word of God. Third, Jesus' name and resurrection as the message of Acts. Jesus' name and resurrection as the message of Acts. This Jesus, this man. You have three related ideas combining to focus the message on the particular person, name, and resurrection of the historical person, Jesus of Nazareth. This first phrase is a common one, but it's so often repeated in reference to Jesus that you just cannot ignore it. If you're reading through Acts in one sitting or in two sittings, you're just reading it fast, you you can't ignore how often the apostles refer to Jesus as this man or this Jesus. It's very unique. Very unique is a poor... It's unique. It is unique. The phrase, this man or this Jesus, appears as soon as verse 11 in chapter 1. And it's in the mouth of an angel, no less. This Jesus, who was taken up from you to heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go up into heaven, physically, bodily, in glory, on a cloud. This Jesus, not some other Jesus, this one. Not some spiritualized, fantastical, metaphorical Jesus, this one. Peter uses it three times in his very first sermon. Acts 2, 22 to 23, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, this Jesus, you crucified. God raised him up. Again, Acts 2, 32, this Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And again in verse 36, God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. 
3.11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. So there is developing in the book of Acts, very early on, a definite historical particularity about which Jesus, about which Jesus the apostles are preaching. Yeah, we know there's a lot of Jesuses out there. Yeah, we know that a lot of you think of this Jesus in another way. But we're preaching to you this Jesus in this way who's doing these things. He's the one we're talking about. It's not everybody's Jesus. It's not the Jesus of your imagination. It's not Jesus as you think he ought to be. It's not Jesus as you have always heard him. It's not love is love, Jesus. It's not therapeutic Jesus who just makes you want to feel good about yourself. It's not genie in a bottle Jesus who's just going to be there to give you everything you need and solve all your problems. It's not life coach Jesus who's there to make you more successful in whatever you do. And it's not have it your way Jesus. It's not cute baby Jesus or my boyfriend Jesus of the contemporary Christian power ballad. It's not the gentleman Jesus who only ever stands at the door and knocks but will never enter without your permission. It is the crucified, buried, risen, physically ascended, exalted Jesus, King Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ. This Jesus. And no other. Now, Jesus' enemies refer to him like that too in Acts 6, 13 to 14. They even refer to Stephen that way. This man, this man, it's derogatory. This man, Stephen, never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him saying that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. Insulting use of that phrase. But Stephen turns it around on them in his historical sermon when he gets to Moses in chapter 7, verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge? Ah, doesn't that sound familiar? That's exactly what they're saying about Jesus. Who made you a ruler and judge? This man, Jesus. But Stephen's turning around on them. Oh, this Moses, this Moses, this very one Moses, whom they said, who made you a ruler and judge? This man, Moses, in very point of fact, according to Jewish scripture, this man, God sent us both ruler and redeemer by the hand of an angel. That's how much this man, Moses, was. And look how you all treated him. Now you're doing the same thing to Jesus. This man. This man led them out, Moses did, Stephen says. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you another prophet like me from among your brothers, who Stephen views as Jesus. This man, this Moses that y'all rejected, this man told you that, he was, that God was going to raise up another prophet for you like Jesus, and look, guess what you're doing to him? Just what you did to Moses. Shame on you. This man. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, saying to Aaron, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, we don't know what happened to him. He's still up there on that mountain. Was it called Sinai or something? So, when we get to the end of Stephen's sermon, and he says, As your fathers did, so do you, what do you think he's talking about? He's talking about how they rejected this Jesus of Nazareth right before he began preaching, just like their fathers rejected this Moses. Stephen is using their pejorative, derogatory, demonstrative pronoun, this, 
against them to their own condemnation by their own law. Yeah, you say this Jesus like, you, like it's a cut on Jesus. Yeah, that's what they said about Moses, too. And you all believe in Moses, don't you? You say you do, but your fathers didn't. And you're treating Jesus just like they treated that Moses. But it continues. When Philip goes to preach Christ in Samaria, he finds Simon the magician. And what is his reputation in chapter 8, verse 10? This man. Ah, now we have a competing this man. This man is the power of God that is called great. Oh, this man? This man is the power of God that's called great. Not, not Jesus? Hmm. But this man, the power of God who is supposedly called great, ends up exposed as a false convert by the end of the chapter. Paul then takes up the phrase as his own preaching when he concludes his sermon in Acts 13, 38 by saying of the risen and ascended Lord Jesus, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And again, in Acts 17, 3, Paul says to the Athenians, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. This one. So as we go through the narrative, look for that phrase, this man, this Jesus, this one, this one. You can't just think of Jesus in any old way you want. It's this one or no one. His name, second related emphasis in Luke's phrase, the name or his name or the name of Jesus. It's the name of Jesus who heals the lame man outside the temple in 3.6. His name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong in 3.16. But the authorities demand to know in 4.16, by what power or by what name did you do this? You see what Luke's doing? And they testify in chapter 4, verse 9, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but God raised him from the dead, and there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In 4.17 and 18, the Jewish authorities warn them not to speak anymore in this name, or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. Of course, the apostles refused to quit speaking in his name. So in 540, they beat the apostles and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. It's a theme. You can't miss it. You can't unsee it. We go on. Paul, people are baptized in the name of Jesus. Paul will suffer in the name of Jesus. The apostles will preach boldly in the name of Jesus. Maybe most important of all, P- Peter preaches in Acts 10, 43. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. The name of Jesus, Savior. Maybe the theme comes to a head in Acts 19, when the Jewish exorcists try to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in Acts 19.30, and they say, in return, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? <laughs> I don't know your name. <laughs> I know Jesus' name, but I sure don't know who you are. I don't know who you are using Jesus' name. Long story short, the demoniac jumps the Jewish exorcist, beats him up, fear falls on all those who see it, and Luke says, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. It wasn't the name of Paul. It wasn't the name of Barnabas. It wasn't the name of the church. It was the name of Jesus. His power 
his reputation, his mercy, his glory, his authority, his name, everything he stands for. And of course, it's the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus that the apostles are preaching as what makes Jesus so special, so important, so authoritative, so worthy of our worship and obedience, and so clearly vindicated and proven by God as king of God's kingdom. The resurrection did that. So you cannot miss the idea that the name, power, reputation, glory, identity of Jesus dominates, dominates the narrative in Luke-Acts. Christian, you simply cannot be doing biblical evangelism if you don't mention the name of Jesus. Worldview apologetics? Yeah, you can do that without mentioning Jesus, conceivably. Evangelism? No, no, no. You you can't do evangelism without mentioning Jesus' name. I don't care where in the world you are. That doesn't count. People cannot become Christians on the mission field if they do not hear and trust in the name of Jesus. Peter said in Acts 2.33 that Jesus' physical resurrection from the dead and ascension to God's right hand to receive the promised Holy Spirit is what caused the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost in the first place. He said in Acts 3, God glorified and raised Jesus from the dead, and that's why Jesus' name healed the man born lame. Their whole message is summarized in Acts 4, 2, as proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. That's the whole summary. That's what they're on about in their sermons. And again, in Acts 4, 33, with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, not to his morality, not to his teaching, not to his social ethic, to his resurrection. That's what makes Jesus special. Friends, without Jesus' name, without his physical bodily resurrection from the dead, the apostles had no message to preach. You excise all references to Jesus' name and his resurrection, and you tell me what you're left with in the apostolic preaching. You're left with nothing. Nothing. That's what they're about the name and resurrection of Jesus. So any church that denies the name or physical resurrection of Jesus has no message to preach either. And trust me, those are around today in Elgin. You can go to many churches in the Fox Valley area and hear messages that either deny or simply ignore or are embarrassed about the physical resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Is that a church? What would Peter say? What would Paul say? All too often, it's Christ's name itself that goes without being said in so-called Christian sermons. I was told one time by a seminary professor that I don't have to... And this is at an evangelical seminary. I didn't go to a liberal seminary. I went to an evangelical seminary. And I was told one time by a seminary professor who was also a pastor of a local church that I don't have to mention the name of Jesus in every sermon in order to preach Christian sermons. I don't? 
well, my goodness, how can any sermon be Christian without preaching Christ? A better pastor told me, yes, you might try to preach a Christian sermon without mentioning Christ, but why would you want to? Fourth, God's kingdom is the goal. God's kingdom is the goal. Acts 1, 3, 3 and 6. Luke picks up in the second volume with Jesus' resurrection appearances to the disciples. Acts 1, 3 says Jesus was appearing to them during 40 days, speaking of the kingdom of God. And that's important, right? Jesus died. He's risen from the dead. He's got 40 days with his people. What's he going to talk about? He's going to talk about the kingdom of God. Okay, that must be really important to Jesus. That's how Luke began the gospel story of Jesus' birth, though, in Luke 1.32. Jesus will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Kingdom. At the beginning of Luke, and now at the beginning of Acts. Kingdom, first volume. Kingdom, second volume. You see a theme there? The kingdom of God, kind of like this stuff with Isaiah, it's like a color. It's like a a color that you're you're decorating your house with, right? You have different rooms in your house. They're all decorated in different colors, but there's one little thread that you like so much that you just use it to tie the whole thing together. And everybody likes to notice it. Ah, you carried that through. Ah, the floors came through. Ah, you carried that green or that pink or that whatever. Isaiah is that, and the kingdom of God is that in these two volumes. They hold everything together. He begins with it in Luke. He begins with it in Acts. Acts 1, then, is continuing, again, the same story of Jesus rising to the throne of God's eternal kingdom by dying for the sins of his people, rising from the dead, and ascending to God's right hand in heaven. But speaking of the kingdom of God is also probably Luke's way of summarizing what Jesus had been teaching them in Luke 24, 45, where he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the king of God's kingdom, who will also be the priest, should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. The Christ is the anointed one, priest king of God's kingdom, And so in the context of the risen Christ teaching them about the kingdom of God, they asked him a relatively reasonable question in Acts 1.6. Forty days you've been talking to us about this kingdom. So will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Pretty reasonable from a Jewish perspective, right? Kingdom, 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 kingdom. That's been your sermon for the last four weeks. Every Bible study is about the kingdom. So... Is it time? Are we there yet? But the whole book of Acts is the answer to that question. The kingdom will not be limited to national Israel. It will extend, in Isaiah's language, to the end of the earth. Acts 2, 30 and 31. This is why Peter explains Pentecost in Acts 2 in terms of fulfilling God's covenant with David, the king, in Acts 2, 30. Being a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of David's descendants on his throne, kingdom. David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. 
He's the king. It's also why Peter explains Pentecost in terms of a royal enthronement psalm like Psalm 110, which Peter quotes in Acts 2.34. David didn't ascend into the heavens. You see how important the doctrine of ascension is to Peter. Hey, David's not the one who ascended into heaven. I mean, David was great. Don't get us wrong. David, great king, father, forefather. God made a covenant with him. But, but he didn't ascend into heaven. But he himself, David himself said, the Lord said to my Lord. Well, how many lords are there? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a foot, footstool. Look, David's not saying that sit at my right hand was said to him, to David. David's saying, the Lord, God, said that to my Lord, the Messiah, who I'm only foreshadowing as king. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified and who is now physically ascended into heaven to take the fulfillment of David's throne. Jesus has ascended to the throne of God's kingdom in heaven in a way that David never hoped to do, never could, and never deserved to. That's why Jesus now has the authority to pour out the Holy Spirit from heaven. Acts 8, in fact, Luke summarizes all of Philip's preaching in Samaria as the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. That's what they're preaching, kingdom and name, kingdom and name, kingdom and name. I'm running out of time. You can look at many of those references on your own. Fifth, Christ-like suffering as the requirement. Christ-like suffering as the requirement. Before I go on, I'm just going to mention that at the very end of Acts, what do you find Paul preaching under house arrest at Rome? He's proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. Fifth, Christ-like suffering as the requirement. Christ-like suffering as the requirement. Paul suffers the same charges as Jesus did in all of his trials. You ever recognize this? Paul is like an example of Jesus. Paul's going through the same thing Jesus went through legally. When Paul returns to Jerusalem after his third missionary journey, against all counsel, to the contrary, he goes into the temple. But when the Jews see him there, Luke tells us, Acts 21, 27, they stir up a whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. But they bear the same kind of false testimony against him before the governor Felix, 24, 5, and 6. We have found this man a plague when he stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. There's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. And yet Jesus was accused of these very same things by the very same kinds of people. They accused Jesus to Pilate in Luke 23, 5. They were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people! Ah! They're accusing Paul of exactly what they accused Jesus of. Stirring up the people. Teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even into this place. And Pilate says back to them, Luke 23, 14, You brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. Like master, like servant. Paul suffers the same chant as Jesus did. Acts 21, 36. Paul's accusers say, Away with him! And 22, 22, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. But they said the same thing of Jesus. Matthew, in Luke 23, 18, 
Pilate wanted to release Jesus, but the crowds cried out together, Away with this man! And release to us Barabbas. Like master, like servant. And Paul suffers despite the same admission of innocence by his own judges. Time after time, even though the Jews persecute Paul, the Romans find no good reason to prosecute Paul. Even the Pharisees in Acts 23 say, we find nothing wrong with this man. <laughs> well, if you find nothing wrong with him, what's he doing here? What if a spirit or angel spoke to him? Claudius Lysias, the Roman tribune who saw, oversaw Paul's arrest in the temple in Jerusalem, writes to the governor Felix in 23:29, I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. I mean, it's in writing. Nothing worthy of death or imprisonment for Paul. Governor Festus privately testifies to Agrippa, chapter 25, 18. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I had supposed. I mean, I thought that he was really some bad guy. And publicly, Festus professes, in chapter 25, verse 25, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer, but I found that he had done nothing worthy of death. 2631, King Agrippa and Bernice say to one another of Paul after listening to him, this man is doing nothing worthy of death or imprisonment. Time after time, the Romans find Paul innocent. And time after time, Pilate found Jesus innocent. Luke 23, 4, Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Luke 23, 14 and 15, after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. In Luke 23, 22, when the crowds insist that Pilate crucified Jesus a third time, he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I found no guilt in him deserving of death. Like master, like servant. It's as if Luke is telling Paul's story of persecution to remind you of the same kind of experience Jesus endured to encourage everybody who's reading it in the churches, hey, 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 listen, listen, I know you're suffering this stuff. I know they're accusing you of this kind of stuff too, right? You're going through this, aren't you? They hate you. The, the way is being spoken of evil everywhere. I know. But they did the same thing to Jesus and Paul. You're fine. You're okay. The Bible doesn't promise that the culture is going to like you. And as Daniel Margaretta so poignantly observed, success for the word does not grow independently of the suffering of the messengers, but because of it. It is remarkable that each of these three references to the growth of the word, 6, 7, 12, 24, 19, 20, like we mentioned earlier, all those references to the growth of the word occur narratively on the day after a crisis. Ah, the word grew and expounded and extended and multiplied after a crisis for the church, whether internal, external, or political. So the theology of Acts is not triumphalistic. It's not a discipleship of glory. It's a discipleship of the cross. I really wanted to address the Spirit as the power and gift of the narrative of Acts. I just didn't have time to do that. I don't think you think I have time to do that now. Uh, seventh and finally, the church is the result so what happens when God fulfills his Old Testament promises? What happens when God's word performs God's work? What happens when the name of this Jesus is preached? What happens when the kingdom of God and Jesus' reign over it is proclaimed to all the nations? What happens when God's suffering servants 
proclaim God's Son, Christ Jesus. What happens is the local churches, just like the ones you're sitting in in this very room, that's what happens. This happens. It happens all the way through Acts, does it not? What's Paul doing in Acts? He's not just doing evangelism. He's planting churches. And then he's going back and strengthening the churches that he's planting, appointing elders and deacons for them in every town. Churches. You're not alone. You're not designed to live the Christian life alone. Your salvation is just the beginning. You repenting and believing is just the beginning. Now you're part of a church. Now you're sewn together, knit together in love. Luke Acts is not merely a composite biography of the apostles, nor is it a defense of the church's political and social harmlessness. It's the origin story of the church. Acts is the history of how the church in Christ Jesus got its identity as the multi-ethnic people of God in the first place. Luke wants Theophilus to be certain that the church he joined when he was baptized had its beginnings in the authoritative historical events of Jesus' life, death, burial, physical resurrection, ascension, and this outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church and the apostolic testimony to Jesus' resurrection, which is a testimony rooted in their own authoritative commission from Jesus himself, or in Peter's unforgettable words, what Luke wants Theophilus to know is, we did not follow cleverly devised myths. We saw it all. The Jesus story is not a fairy tale. It's history. It's history with a theological message, a point, even an edge, because all the way through, God the Father is calling all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And by writing his two-volume work, Luke is saying to his original reader, Theophilus, and to every God-lover like him, this is us, man. This is us. This is where you came from. This is why we're here. Hmm? These are our roots. This is where we came from. This is our history. These are our people. This is how we got here. And it all started with this Jesus, whom we all crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, just as he promised, not only from Isaiah's time, but long before that. And you know, we're going to meet these people. We're going to meet them. We're going to meet our roots. Not just in a literary sense over the next weeks and months as we preach through Acts. Jesus' resurrection is only the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead, the firstborn of many brethren, these dear suffering saints who testified so faithfully to the resurrection of Jesus that we're about to read of in Acts over the next year. Our forefathers in the faith, those who planted the very first churches and handed down to us the good deposit of the gospel stained in their own blood, we will meet them all in the resurrection. And though we cannot see them or hear them, they are worshiping with us now. And we with them, because you, Christian, have not come to Mount Sinai this morning to be condemned by the law. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festival gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of these righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to his sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. God's word about Jesus' resurrection establishes God's kingdom and creates God's people. This is us.
You in? Let's pray. And Father, we thank you for preserving the record, the spread of your gospel, and the building up of your churches in the book of Acts. We pray that you would bless our study of it in the coming weeks and months. And that we would learn what it is to be a church. We'd learn what it means to be united with Christ in his death and resurrection. That we would apply it and obey it. That you would make it fruitful among us by your grace, by the power of your word, by the power of your spirit within us by the presence of Jesus who said to us, I will never leave you or forsake you. For his sake. Amen.